Hey everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. 1934, part two. and welcome back to Gilda Films Podcast, which picture was best? If you're still listening to us, we are uh, exploring the films of 1934. This is the second half of our episode because they had 12 Best Picture nominees that year. And yeah, we really didn't want to do a whole big episode on that because not many of them were good, memorable. (laughs) This is a good year for there to have been five movies, but uh, they decided to go with 12. So yeah, we're getting to the rest of them. We have five of them that we're going to be talking about, including the winner for the year. And then as always, doing our honorable mentions and our personal awards. Hello to Brett. You're here. Hi. Hello. And then welcome back. Um, Again, if you've been listening to us, you know that Toby is here. Hello, Toby. Hello. How are you? I'm doing good. Yeah. So um, yeah, at, at the time of this recording, we literally finished the last movie like five minutes ago. So it wasn't uh, wasn't the best, but you'll hear about that later. So, Brett. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how we approach this because if you listen to our last episode, you would not think that this is one of the worst years we've covered, maybe. But uh, it is. I mean, like I think this is our, our lowest rated year for me. So, but there are some good ones. So we'll get into the good as well as the not so good. Awesome. So I am going to just take a dive into our first film here. And it is, um, it's called Flirtation Walk. This is directed by Frank Borsage, who directed uh, Seventh Heaven, which we talked about a few episodes ago. Um, but yeah, this is the story of a, an, a, um, a private who is stationed, an army private who's stationed in Hawaii. He's played by Dick Powell. And, you know, he's just kind of going about his business. He's not like a high ranking officer or anything. But he encounters Kit Fitz, who is the daughter of the general who is visiting the base that he's at. And, you know, he's pretty much in charge of getting her to this get together. And she's actually engaged to one of the like commanders or sergeants or whoever is there. And along the way, they find this like Hawaiian luau and they end up kind of falling for each other in that one night. Um, especially for Dick Powell's character, he is definitely pretty much head over heels for her. And we get the same um, instance from Ruby Keeler's character, Kit. But um, as time goes on, you know, we realize that this is not going to work. She's the general's daughter and she doesn't want to cause a scandal because she's getting engaged. And so she basically says, I don't really love you. That meant nothing to me. Even though she was lying, he took it very seriously And so as a result, he decides, you know what, I'm going to be an officer and a gentleman. So I'm going to go to West Point and get my degree so I can be this big officer and show everybody what's up. Uh, So basically goes on that he makes a complete career change for um, one night with a woman. Um, And so from there, it's basically him at West Point and she shows up later. It goes into like a big musical stage production that you know, everybody on the base wants her to be in. And he's like, no, that's a terrible idea, but it happens anyway. 
and you could probably imagine where it goes from there. I mean, this is a musical-esque type of, you know, romance film set within West Point, the army. Uh, and I was not a fan of it, you know, pretty much whatsoever. I actually thought it started out pretty good. I mean, I thought in the beginning, Dick Powell had some charisma and his character seemed kind of charming and likable. But then when that, when that event happens, he just like turns on a dime and he is just a stick in the mud for the rest of the movie. Um, and I don't really think any other actor really brings anything to the table per se. The musical that they put on is kind of a nice piece just because it's a nice change of pace, but it's also, I think you mentioned Christian, it's pretty sexist. Um, you know, I mean, it was the time, but still like it is pretty jarring to see now. And I think it's, it's just like a by the book romance that doesn't have any spark. You know, I mean, there's nothing here really that really draws you in. It's, it's not a, a real technical achievement. There's nothing special happening with the cinematography, the editing or anything else here. Um, I think it does kind of get into that, you know, army good type thing, you know, that was kind of around during this time, not so much during, not as so much during World War II, but still kind of around. And, you know, it was nominated for two Oscars. I would not nominate it for any personal awards. I didn't find much of anything here that was a note. And so kind of like two of the previous ones we talked about last time, there's just not much here to pick up on. So. Right. Um, I keep going back to this in our first episode and I probably will a lot in this one, but the great depression, I guess people just want to see a lot of, you know, romance type movies something that's easy and palatable to watch. This, I could see it being like a recruiting tool. Like, look, you can get the girl too. Basically that. But other than that, I mean, the best part of this, I, I did like the on-location shooting at West Point. Um, that was sort of a first thing. That was pretty nice to see it. I always forget West Point's in New York. I don't know why I always think it's somewhere else. That's just me. Um, but the musical review that they do, I did like it other than it being sexist because I'm pretty sure West Point these days has a woman in like as the dean of their students oh. whilst this thing is saying well a woman can't do that because she's too emotional and she's too much of a woman she needs to be in the home so look how far we've come but yeah, yeah. other than that i mean it's not memorable at all i have nothing else to say i guess on <laughs> toby i mean yeah i have to agree it's not very memorable i mean i it's kind of like an understandable Best Picture nominee, I guess. And the fact that it, it is to do with the military, which I feel like, you know, helps it a lot, but yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I can definitely see why it was nominated, you know, why the Academy would nominate this because it is kind of like, it starts in Hawaii. They also love when they, you know, go to different locations and whatnot and then move to West Point. And yeah, being about the military and a romance, it's, it fits in with a lot of the other nominees especially one we're going to talk about next. Which but, I think the one next is better than this yeah. one slightly, but. Right. right. I agree. But no, I mean, Flirtation Walk, um, it, it did have two nominations for Best Picture and Sound Recording, so not a whole lot. Um, the Hawaiian number was actually shot on the biggest set ever constructed for Warner Brothers at the time. Though, like Christian said, many scenes were shot on location at West Point, which is kind of cool. Um, the movie is seen again in 2001's The Wedding Planner with with Jennifer Lopez, I believe. Um, and so I guess 
people, like you said, Christian, people know this exists. I guess my parents love that movie, The Wedding Planner. And now I'm just like, I actually want to rewatch it just to see like this in here. Is that the one with her and Matthew McConaughey? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My mom yeah. loves that movie too. So yeah, but um, the title of the film refers to a path at West Point where soldiers would will sometimes take people on dates. And so I liked, uh, I liked when the girl was like, is this the flirtation walker? Yeah. Oh, you said it. Yeah. It's like that Leonardo Di- DiCaprio meme. Like, there it is. There. Right. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, yeah, I feel like this is one. it's hard to go deep into because we just clearly didn't find much here. Um, that was very noteworthy. It's it's there. It's there. <laughs> but yeah, a- any other thoughts on Flirtation Walk before we move on to something slightly better? If you watch The Wedding Planner, I that's the most you ever need to see a Flirtation Walk. <laughs> the, whatever little bits in that movie. There you go. All right. Well, our next film is another one I'm going to introduce. And... I will say it is very similar to flirtation walk in a lot of ways. I think uh, it is called here comes the Navy. And so when I was going into this one, I was expecting just pretty much a Navy propaganda piece. Um, and it is that to a degree, but the main plot point is a romance. And so the film stars James Cagney in the lead role. And he's, he's a guy who's like not in the Navy at first, but he, um, he encounters Pat O'Brien's character, who's named Biff Martin, who basically steals James Cagney's girlfriend at a dance club. Um, and he's like a naval officer that Cagney gets in cahoots, gets, you know, um, in tussles with every now and then, basically. And so once again, we have a guy who decides to make a complete career change based on one single like event that doesn't even seem to bother him that much. And he says, you know what, I'm going to join the Navy. And I'm going to do it just to get back at this guy and get under his skin. And so he does. And, um, you know, Pat O'Brien ends up being James Cagney's superior on the, you know, the ship that they're on. And things kind of take a a turn of events when Cagney falls in love with Pat O'Brien's sister, who was actually played by Gloria Stewart, who got a nomination for Titanic many years later as the older Rose character. Um, so they fall in love. Obviously, Pat O'Brien doesn't like it. And so a lot of it is just basically the sparring between O'Brien and Cagney's characters as they kind of deal with this situation. From there, it kind of goes back and forth between that romance and some, you know, scenes of like actual, you know, kind of like warfare and like action where Cagney's character kind of displays some heroism, kind of kind of gets on the good side of O'Brien's character to a degree. Kind of similar to Flirtation Walk. I, I didn't find a whole lot here that just like ever really struck me as great in any way or good <laughs> in any way. I think Cagney's Cagney in the lead role. I mean, like he's exactly how you would expect him to be. I thought Pat O'Brien, you know, his name is Biff. It might as well be Stiff because that's what his performance is for the most part. And I, I, I liked Gloria Stewart. I didn't think they gave her enough to do here. But um, when she does appear on screen, I think she gives, you know, a a good enough supporting actress performance. Um, But I just, with a lot of these movies that we've seen from this year, especially these ones centered on these romances where these guys take these like extreme steps in their lives based on just one singular event, 
it's just too much for my suspension of disbelief. It's just like, this is just too out there for me. And it doesn't do enough. Like it's not funny in any way, um, which I think it was kind of going for the romance is once again, pretty cookie cutter. And so it is better than flirtation walk because it does have some exciting scenes. And I think the performances are better, but overall for me, there still wasn't that much going on here. Yeah, this is the the movie that literally five minutes before we started recording, we finished. I mean, and if, if anybody watches this on a, the website is okay, Rue. It's really weird because whoever <laughs> posted it up there, it felt like we were on a ship the entire time swaying back and forth in Zooms. Yeah. So somebody got a hold of this copy and butchered the editing, but whatever, I digress. Anyway, the only reason why I don't hate this, but I also don't like it is because I know the people in it. Mm-hmm. It's James Cagney. Like, why you haven't seen one of his films before? Please watch anything. Great gangster films. Um, Yankee Doodle Dandy, he won for. Um, but no, he's enjoyable just to watch. So I think that's one of the reasons why I watched it. Gloria Stewart needs to get off ships because she, you know, <laughs> cursed the Titanic. Uh, she was on USS Arizona in this movie. We'll talk about what happened there. I was gagged at the hat. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's by the books romance basically. There's no musical numbers in this. There's a scene of what, Brett? Blackface. Yep. Content warning. Blackface. It's used, yeah. I mean, blackface is used weirdly and terribly in everything. This is just out of the blue. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's like flirtation walk. I don't really care that much. And it's a, again, hey, you want to get the girl? Join the Navy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I <laughs> I have to agree. Like, it's just like um, flirtation walk, except you add some blackface. And there's like, like Christian said, I know James Cagney was, so it's like a little more interesting. But even then, it's like something that's not memorable, or it has aged well, of course. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Cackney just brings a level of spirit to it that just doesn't exist in Flirtation Walk. And obviously that helps, but it doesn't make the movie, you know, great or or good by any means. I like seeing him in non-gangster roles too. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's because that's what he was known for. That's what we expected. So it's nice to see him do something a little different for sure. I mean, like I've seen him and like I said, Yankee Doodle Dandy, that's a pure musical I've seen him in some comedies. Um, one, two, three is really good. So like to see him getting out of that element of gangster stuff, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Even if it's something I don't care about. Right. Exactly. Well, you know, this film was one of those, one of the very few in history that only got one nomination and it was for best picture. So well, nothing why else. Why nominated that? I, I, <laughs> did you really need 12 nominees? Like really? Um, it was directed by Lloyd Bacon. Um, and we, we didn't have any fun facts for this one, but filming did take place at a number of naval facilities with full cooperation from the Navy. So, I mean, you do, you do still get some of that kind of naval propaganda here. Um, and the film takes place on the USS Arizona, which was famously sunk um, at Pearl Harbor in 1941. And I have to say, I completely missed where they mentioned that it was the USS Arizona, like completely missed it. I mean, they didn't have to say Pearl Harbor, USS Arizona. Excuse me for loving World War II history. 
But the second I heard that, I turned to Toby and I said, oh, that's the one at the bottom of the sea right now. Yep. So thanks, Gloria Stewart. You sunk another ship. <laughs> Just trouble. But yeah, I mean, that is Here Comes the Navy. A, a little bit more here than you're getting with some of the other films, but... I feel, like this kind of, I feel like this one, especially if they were to have uh, re-released it around 1941, going into 1942, it'd probably be like an even more, I, I don't know how successful it was here, but it would probably be even more of a success there. Oh, yeah. Those years. Yeah, because it'd be a great recruiting tool. Yeah, I mean, if you think about when we talked about 1943, I don't how this movie keeps coming up, I don't know, but we talked about in which we serve. Which is also like Navy propaganda, but this one actually has like emotion and a storyline that people would connect with. So just imagine how this might have done at the Oscars if it came out during World War II. I mean, I imagine pretty well. So I guess this is made about, let's see, like 1.7 million. So today with the handy dandy, oh, right here. So about $19 million today. That's pretty good. Yeah. No success, and then its budget, I guess, was about two sixty three thousand. Oh yeah, huge profit. Interesting. Well, yeah, that is. Here comes the Navy. I mean, next we're gonna take uh, some time away from the military. Thankfully, Christian, you've got this one, so take it away. Okay, we are finally doing a good one. <laughs> So this is Imitation of Life, and it is directed by, where's my notes here, John M. Stahl. And it is another of Claudette Colbert's three films that she did in 1934. So it is about a woman, um, Beatrice Pullman. She's sort of down on her luck. She's needing a job. She's a single mother. And in one day to her house walks um, Delilah Johnson, who is a black woman who's looking for work. She, it's a, she comes to the wrong house. But while Beatrice's daughter is having some trouble upstairs, Delilah makes them a meal and she sort of says, hey, maybe I could be your housekeeper and help you out around here because you are a single mother. She says, sure, why not? Um, they become good friends and eventually uh, B, as she goes by, B sort of starts her own business of pancakes. And I will say Delilah is the one who made the pancakes. Again, she's a black woman. Okay, so we're in 1934 here. So this white woman steals the recipe, <laughs> makes her own business, and it's a very successful business. Um, she uses Delilah's face for the basically the image of the branding because it does become a very successful branding product. And while this is all happening, Delilah's having her sort of own family issues. Her daughter, um, I want to get the name right here. Piola, yeah, I forgot how to say that. Piola is a very light-skinned black girl who sort of wants to shun away the fact that she is a black person. She really passes off for white. Um, the actress in this, Freddie Washington, was a very light-skinned African-American woman. Um, but yeah, uh, Delilah is obviously pretty sad about that. She has her own issues. Claudette Colbert has her own issues with her daughter, sort of wanting to get romantic with Claudette's <laughs> boyfriend in this. Everybody has issues. It's a very tearjerker melodrama of the 1930s. It would be remade in the 50s as an even, I mean, I love both versions of this story, but this one's really good too. But yeah, that's Imitation of Life. So um, I will say Louise Beaver's 
plays Delilah in this and she's incredible. If they did supporting this year, which we were not into a supporting categories yet, hands down for me, I would have loved to have seen her win. I don't know how practical it would have been at this time, sadly, but somebody could have pushed her for best actors and she would have easily win head to head with Claudette in Claudette's film that she did and win for, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. Imitation of life. Yeah. Thoughts. Toby, go ahead. Um, I really like this. I, I've seen the remake from the 50s in a class. So I was familiar with the story. And this is very similar to that. Um, but I like that Delilah Johnson is such a prominent character. And it's from 1934. I mean, there is the problem of like, yeah, her recipe was stolen, which is like so awful. And she sort of doesn't really get any dues for that really. Mm-hmm. Um, I say I say stolen, but I don't want to say stolen. I just- She doesn't like- She doesn't get much credit for it. Right, she gives it up, like not right. gives it up, but she cooks like just because she wants to, but I feel like she could get more credit. Yeah. Colbert takes over. I mean, her, her character makes the business decisions um, and kind of, in some ways, kind of like pressures Louise Beaver's character and Delilah into that at times. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, this is a film that hasn't aged well in that regard, right? I mean, this is, you know, not exactly a great representation, you know, and if you were going to go with this story, it would have been better for you know, Beaver's character have some more autonomy, you know, and mm-hmm. kind of push back and whatnot. But I think, you know, aside from that and considering that it was made in 1934, I, I enjoyed it too. I mean, I, I just really enjoy the emotion here. I mean, like, and I think just compared to other movies from this year where I don't get much of that, some melodrama is really nice. You know, it, it's nice mm-hmm. to like have that to care about and have characters that are interesting and are dealing with real issues. Um, and I feel like despite like the problems with Delilah, Delilah, she is a dynamic and interesting black character. And I do like at the end, spoilers, when she dies, that B does give her what she wants for her funeral and all that. So it's like, she's like a more dynamic character than you would expect. Absolutely, like I, I completely agree. She gets her the the funeral of the century, basically. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Mean, she had hard work that she did. Well, I mean, if you consider roles for black characters and especially black women during this time, aside from, you know, the few movies that might have been made by, you know, someone like Oscar Michaud, maybe. And I'm not even sure how black women were treated in his movies. But like, I mean, compare this to like Hattie McDaniel in Gone with the Winds, okay, who won an Oscar five years later much, much better character, much better character development in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of nice to see. I also think it's really cool that they actually got a, you know, like you said, Christian, a light-skinned African-American to play Paola because they very easily could have just hired a white actress um, to play that role, and they didn't. And I'm I'm not saying I don't want to applaud them too heavily for something that they should do, but we see problems with that today in 2020 yeah so, yeah but i mean i really like all the performances i agree louise beavers is pretty incredible here i think they're co-leads personally like her and claudette um 
but Claudette is really great as well. I mean, I just like that they gave Louise Beavers a story, you know, like she could come in here, say, let me be your housekeeper. And it's like, okay, well, you're my housekeeper. Well, now you're my friend. Now you're somewhat of my business associate since you are the chef at my little restaurant here. But then now you're going to have your own story to go Mm -hmm. on. And it's like your own family issues and your own, like you see your ending of your story too. Right. That. No, it's just been like a secondary role, and it doesn't exactly. Like and honestly, I think I mean um, Delilah's stories. I think it's better than Claudette Colbert's yeah, character story, even. It's more oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's so like Claudette's, Claudette's daughter wants to get with Claudette's boyfriend. Cool. Everybody else does in all these movies too. I care about this lady over here and her daughter and her issues. Right, and I, I both with this and the remake and i really i love the remake i think it's a pretty great film um but like in both of them i don't i don't really get into that that subplot with claudette colbert's daughter and her lover you know i just i don't i don't really know why that's appropriate um maybe i'm missing something there but with between louise beavers and freddie washington you know or or the younger actress who plays payola I think about like the scene where Louise Beaver shows up at the school and it is an all white school. I mean, it, it may be probably not, but it may have been desegregated, but like nobody knew, not even the teachers knew that Paola was actually black. Right. And so to see something like that and to see how, you know, Paola deals with that, it may not be you know the, the best narrative ever, but it is something that we, you didn't see that kind of story being told you know and so it's kind of interesting to see that and it is very very compelling like you said toby um christian do you want to go over our fun facts for this one indeed um so we said it is one of the three films of 1934 with claudette and it was nominated for three things best picture assistant director because that was a thing at the time (laughs) and sound recording honestly again if there was a supporting i would put louise in there just so she could win but yes she could also be seen as a co-lead by Brett. Um, good point there. Um, based on the 1933 novel, the same name by Fanny Hurst, who was inspired after a road trip with Zora Neale Hurston, um, famous author for what? Their Eyes Are Watching God. Yes. Mm-hmm. Remade in 1959 by Douglas Sirk. And if you know anything about him, he does a melodrama and then takes it to the nth degree. So yeah. Though literally one of the two main characters, Louise Beavers isn't even among the top billed cast in the opening credits. That's true. And that's that's the because they go on to the whole cast page and she's like fourth or fifth listed. It's like, what? Yeah. So Freddie Washington, who plays the older Paola, was a light skinned African-American, as we said, after the film, many thought she was like her character in practicing self-hatred of who she really was. However, she was very active in the civil rights movement later on. So and I don't think she was in very many movies, too, after this. I looked Mm. so. Um, named one of the 25 most important films on race by Time in 2007. Had trouble receiving approval from the production code because Paola was biracial. And the film consider, was considered progressive for representing single women succeeding in entrepreneurial ventures. Which makes sense. Um, I, I want to know how successful her business was because you can only serve, well, okay. Oh my God. I'm literally saying you can only serve pancakes up to a point. And then I forgot there's a thing called IHOP. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was funny. 
Because I looked up IHOP. I, I when I was watching this, I was looking up when IHOP was founded because I was interesting. And it was it was definitely later, is after this, so obviously, but well, we just lost our IHOP sponsorship. <laughs> I do want to say I there is when it comes to like Louise Beaver's character Delilah, you know, being the face of this business, I will say just to keep in mind, you know, for anybody who wants to watch this really strong aunt jemima vibes going on there like the parallels are very very strong and that obviously that's pretty relevant um with what's going on with that what's gone on with that earlier this year so like maybe they take pictures i don't know like production pictures yeah and it, it's very like it's like her smile her imaging of um the like the pancake mix and the syrup mix mm-hmm. the billboards that there are yeah yeah so yeah, I mean, it's not a perfect movie. It's got its problems, but like for the time and like just as as far as just being enjoyable, it's a really nice watch. So, any further thoughts on that one before we move on to our next film? It's very good. Just watching. So our next film, um, we're gonna take a step back here. Um, this next film is called Viva Via. Um, well- <laughs> and this is it, it's sort of a biopic um i mean it is a biopic and it's the story of Pancho villa um just to address you know the big thing right off the bat uh Pancho villa is played by wallace berry in the film who is white uh so we've got some whitewashed casting here as was often the case but is always really ugly to see so the film is already a damper from the start because of that um, but it's basically the story of Via and you know how he was a son, how he was a kid, how his experiences there led to him becoming, you know, quote unquote, a bandit later on, um, kind of trying to, you know, go after the rich for the poor, um, and basically how that led him into some like political involvement um, with you know overthrowing the Spanish regi- regime in Mexico and his role in that and him taking power and eventually his downfall. So in some ways, it, it's kind of the story of its life, but it does focus a lot on like his role in that process um, and kind of just goes over, you know, that, you know, what that looked like. And it's kind of a Western in that sense. It's almost an epic, I would say. Not that it feels epic, but just the way it's kind of told. Um, there's a lot of this film that isn't very good at all. Um starting with the casting i think you know christian you mentioned that like none of the characters were none of the actors were hispanic that were hired for this film and i mean you're you're doing a film set in mexico about pancho villa that's un that's inexcusable that said i i think there were times where i enjoyed this more than i expected to granted that probably went it because i went in expecting this to be one of the worst movies ever um I did think it was interesting to see some of the companionship that Via has with like some of the leaders and with, especially with the journalists that kind of follows him around. I thought that weird kind of friendship was an interesting way to kind of humanize him in some ways. But I also think the problem is that the film doesn't really know how it wants to portray Pancho Villa. At times he comes off as, you know, they're trying to make him a sympathetic character at times that very much seems like it's not the case. And I think that, you know, that's okay because characters are complex, but it, it, I, don't, I just don't think the film really pins down, pins down what it's trying to say, what it's trying to present him as. 
Wallace Beery, I, I don't think he does anything in the lead role. He does nothing for me. Um, and he is an actor that I've liked before. I really like him in The Champ, for which he won his Oscar. But here he does nothing. And nobody does much of anything, if I'm honest. Um, Faye Ray appears in this film for here and there. I think the, the narrative of her character is pretty awful as well. Um, I mean, she, would, she was in King Kong the year before, so notable because of that. Um, yeah, so I know I think there are moments of this film that are good that I enjoy that I found somewhat exciting, and then there are a lot of moments that are just dull and problematic and drag on. It is, I want, I think it's the longest film that was nominated this year, mm-hmm. and that's definitely felt. So there's that too. I mean, I definitely agree about what you said about Pancho Villa. It doesn't really know how it wants to portray him, and it's very just the whole thing is very like problematic and it being so long it was just like felt like it dragged and like didn't pick up at all i hated it (laughs) so being the resident uh mexican american on panel yep i super hated it for the whitewashing purposes. I'm pretty sure there's more, uh, there's a Pancho Villa movie with who? Antonio Banderas out there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's any more. We're putting Wallace Beery in this. Okay, come on now. And also I read that the Mexican people of Mexico didn't like the casting ideas because Walter Beery, he uh, was either a drunk character or like an idiot in most of his films, except Grand Hotel. He's, well, his decisions are stupid, but yeah. <laughs> I didn't like it. I lost pretty much all interest with it pretty soon into it, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's not one of my favorites. And it's compared with this and Rothschild. I hate Rothschild the most. <laughs> this is easily second on that list there. But yeah, I don't know. I just have this whole issue with, I mean, I get his 1934 representation is not a thing. But looking at it in terms of 2020, mm-hmm. yeah, it's hard to watch. It's not the best at caring once you see it. I mean, it's probably Scarlett Johansson's favorite film, but I don't know. <laughs> well, because it's still such an issue. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, with I think you think about like, you know, Hispanic, Latinx characters and actors today, it, it's still not there. You know, there's still not much of it in terms of representation, even in 2020. And so, and we also just talked about a film where they did have black characters um, and hired someone else when they could have hired a white person. So like, there's no excuse here for it. Right. But yeah, this was directed by Jack Conway, but very interesting. Howard Hawks and William Wellman were uncredited directors here. So what did they exactly do on this? I don't know. I couldn't find much on this movie, mm-hmm. but I, I just saw, I saw like everywhere I looked at that, they were involved in some way, which is really strange because they are both really good directors, you know, you know, historic directors, but. Um, we just talked about Wellman with wings, right? Yes. Yes, yeah, okay. we did. Yeah. Um, this did have one win for assistant director, went to John S. Waters. Good for him. Good for you, John Waters. <laughs> <laughs> he did win an Oscar. Uh, <laughs> hey, do you hear that say? <laughs> uh, this would get three additional nominations for picture, for sound recording, and for writing adaptation. Oh, okay. You notice a lot of these movies were nominated for sound recording? Yeah, 
I'm pretty sure I need to look at that category, but I'm pretty sure both that and writing had a ton of nominations. Let me look here. Toby's looking it up too. Let's see. Okay, yeah. Adaptation doesn't have that many, but yeah, sound recording. Seven for sound recording. Well, seven, okay. and I think I'm pretty sure six of those movies were Best Picture nominated. Yeah, the only one that's not is the affairs of the affairs of Cellini. Cellini. Yeah. Hmm. So, very interesting. Uh, this was based on a book of the same name from 1933. And Pancho Villa's wife actually wrote to David O. Selznick saying that she liked Beery's interpretation of her husband. Okay. Maybe, right. maybe she didn't like her husband. Have we considered exactly. that? Exactly. <laughs> uh, the film was a major box office success, and it did inspire Elia Kazan's Viva Zapata, which starred Marlon Brando in 1952. Oh, my God. Another whitewashed character. <laughs> exactly. Um. Beery hated filming on Mexican locations and had a plane on stand to take him to El Paso in Mexico City anytime. Wow. Uh, and like, like we said earlier, no Hispanic actors were cast in the film whatsoever. Even though there is literally one, I'm pretty sure there's one white character in the entire movie. And that's it. Hmm. So. Viva Villa. Uh, one of the, you know, historic awful cases of representation any further thoughts on that one before we move on to our best picture winner somebody let john waters know he won an oscar (laughs) (laughs) somebody deliver it to him okay well christian you have our best picture winner today i think (laughs) it is the fastest we've gotten to it uh about these movies so (laughs) go ahead and introduce it for us and you know what our best picture winner is a damn good one okay so caveat here this is probably one of the earliest uh films that i have ever seen uh back when i was a kid so it was like the wizard of oz and then this so that's 39 34 so here we go film is it happened one night directed by frank capra and it tells a story of Claudia Colbert's character, here she is in her winning role, Ellie Andrews. She's a spoiled rich heiress and she escapes from her father one day because she, uh, what, she doesn't want to marry the guy or she does? I forgot. She does. Yeah, they had like she a, they, they eloped. The yeah, so they eloped and her father doesn't like that, but she runs away from him and basically to get back to New York, um, she gets on a bus, literally like a plane, trains, and automobile situation here. <laughs> and along the way, she meets Peter Warren, played by Clark Gable, and he's a newspaper man searching for like a big story. He's really down on his luck. He's basically fired. And he comes across her. He knows who she is because she's in all the papers of a missing, missing heiress. Everybody's looking for her across the country. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to get with her. I'm going to pretend I don't really know who she is, and I'm going to help her along the way. So they do that they sort of become the screwball comedy effect where they don't really get along, which would also be, I guess, the Hallmark thing until they teach each other the magic of Christmas. <laughs> anyway, um, so they just have a lot of hijinks along the way. They miss a bus because she wants it to wait for her and the bus driver's like, no way. They do a great hitchhiking scene. They're literally just making their way across country to get her where she needs to be, um, pretending they're married because this is 1934, so modesty, you know. 
but it is a comedy. It is a romantic comedy, a screwball comedy. It is one of the best, best picture winners. I will say that for me personally. Uh, one of my all-time favorites. And yeah, I'm, I, I don't know who picked this year to do, but most likely it might have been me only because I wanted to talk about this. Yeah, it is a good film. So, and it's funny. It's like super funny. This time I laughed a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. And you two have seen this before, so. Right. I watched it for a class, Women in Film, as like the example of a screwball comedy. And obviously it is, you know, the example. It's got everything you would think of for it. But I just really enjoy it. Like, it's one of my favorite Best Picture winners, too. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say Claudette and Clark just have the perfect have perfect chemistry yeah i have an interesting like journey with this film because i've always liked it this is the second time i've seen it the first time i i gave it like four stars out of five which like is good but like for a film that's considered i think considered by a lot of people to be one of the better best picture winners um is a little down I watched it again, obviously, for this. I watched it on the Criterion because um, I bought that a while back. Um, and I, I, I enjoyed it a lot more. I think the first time I just didn't quite get why Claudette Colbert's character was so infatuated with Clark Gables because he could be so mean at times. But I think this time I, I understood the comedy a little bit more and I kind of understood why they fall for each other a lot more. Um, and just a sense of kind of freedom and escape that they give each other from the lives they're living as they kind of experience this together and they i mean they grow too to like each other because they're both pretty annoyed by one another too at first right yeah and i mean like there are times where like you know claudette can be a little um you know fed up with clark gable and clark gable can be a straight up jerk sometimes um to claudette colbert but they both give really really great performances i mean this is the type of performance that just doesn't win oscars anymore Mm -mm. i mean i i really like seeing a film like this that was undeniably the winner of actor and actress for a performance that is straight straight up comedy um you know and, and they do have some dramatic moments here and there but you know that's what they won for and with with clark gable heading into this i was like you know i don't know uh, i really like william powell and the thin man might be some competition it took the first scene with clark gable like the very first scene when he's in the like the phone booth and he's in the conversation with his boss and he's just so exuberant and funny and i was like oh yeah clark gable's got this like no question right that whole scene when they're in the cabin together and it's like um the police come in and they're saying like have you seen this girl and they're like yelling at each other pretending that they're a married couple and stuff and you don't really see her and then like oh man we got away with that and then they come back in and they're like Ha-da-ma. yeah that's that's the best yeah also his line delivery with once he gets her where she needs to be and her father keeps asking her well do you love her do you love her and he's like yes but don't hold that against me <laughs> his line delivery is bef- definitely better than what i said it I actually wrote that quote down. So yeah, oh, I completely, yeah. yeah. That one sticks with me every time I watch this. I was going to mention that scene too, because I really like, like saw that scene 
well not for the first time but you actually like pay attention to that scene for the first time this time and that whole scene is just so great between the, the father and uh, Clark at Clark and it's just like it was my favorite one of my favorites this time around yeah it's a great scene and in a movie where there's a lot of iconic scenes Christian you mentioned the hitchhiking scene which mm -hmm. still works perfectly I like the scene where like Clark Gable is like in the car coming back um, after he's just gone to the, back to the newspaper and he's going to propose to her and you know it's kind of funny and then he finds out oh she's gone because you're like oh man are they ever going to see each other again because I mean this is right. 1934 they can't just text each other or anything like that so um, even the ending is perfect too yeah like, you know you've gone through that whole wall of Jericho thing with the sheets that divides them in the room. And then the little cabin owner's like, what do they want? Well, they wanted a sheet. And you're like, what are they going to do? And then you hear the trumpets and the Trumpet. wall of Jericho comes down. Yeah. It's very suggestive too, uh, which is kind of cool. So, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I think, you know, it's one that I think if you're, if you have somebody who has never seen a classic film, and you want to introduce them to something that you think they'll probably enjoy. I think this is one that's easily enjoyable that a lot of people can get something out of. And it's a good introduction for folks who maybe haven't seen a lot of those movies. When I had seen it in my class, I hadn't really ever seen any early movies like that other than like the wizard of Oz. But yeah, it was very um, easy to watch. Yeah. I think, I think that this was one of the first in terms of when I bought the DVD was when I really started my best picture obsession too. Mm. Cause I had like bought the DVD and then I started buying more of them to get like the whole collection. And I really, I mean, right. how can you not enjoy this movie though? Yeah. Right. I mean, even if it's not one of your favorites, like you're, you're going to get something out of it most likely. Um, and I just think like, you know, even if, I don't know if I consider this one of my favorites. I'd have to see, it's going to go up in my list, but I'd have to see where I'd rank it. But it is one of the most deserving. If you think about the year and the other nominees, and there were some that I really liked, like I really like Barrett's of Wimple Street. But if it happened one night does not win Best Picture this year, that's a crime. Okay, and that, that's a problem. That would be like if Casablanca didn't win in 1943, because it is, to me, it is clearly the best of the nominees. I will say it feels like it's a Moonlight situation in terms of um, Moonlight being produced by A24 and how A24 was such a little company and now it's this huge, massive award-winning mm -hmm. success. While Columbia at the time who produced this was considered like the B pictures, second on the double build. Right. And then they have it happen one night, huge success best picture winning i'm pretty sure too that like uh when you did win best picture at the time the studio got that oscar it wasn't like the producers like it is now right so i was like definitely they get that exposure because let's see yeah it was mostly mgm universal fox had won up until that point yeah that makes sense and like i like we've said uh all credit to Claudette colbert because it's it's one thing to appear in three best picture nominees it's another thing to be really freaking good in all three of them. I mean, I really enjoyed all three of her performances considered nominating all three of them for my personal awards. And this is her best. I think this is a really deserving win for her. Also, I was reading your review on Letterboxd and you pointed out the movie poster on this. Yes. I Say it. adore it. So it's like, 
it's a very simple poster. It's like one of those early like painted posters, but it's just like Clark Gable kind of looking up at Claudette Colbert. And there's like a blue sky with like stars in the background. And for me, I don't know why, but it just speaks classical Hollywood and classical movie star to me um, with Gable and Colbert on the cover, on the poster there. And I love the poster. I've always loved it. It's always struck a chord with me for some reason. That poster too is featured in a modern film somewhere and I can't remember where it is. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I'll find it, but oh, someday I'll remember it. Interesting. Christian, do you want to go over our fun facts for this one? Yes. All right. So this won five awards. It was the first of now three films to win the big five. And those five were Best Picture, Best Director, Best Director, Best Director for Frank Capra, Actress for Claudette, Actor for Clark, and Best Adapted Screenplay. It is also one film of like, I think it's like four or five, to win all of the awards it was nominated for. So that's it. That's all it was nominated for and it won them all. Uh, the first of three Best Director wins for Frank Capra in the 30s. Only one director has won more, John Ford. He has won four. Claudette was so sure she wouldn't win. She was for this film at the Oscars. She was boarding a train when she was told she did win. And they rushed her to accept her award with traveling clothes and all. And you can see that picture if you just type in Claudette Colbert Oscar. Because she does look like she about to board a train. It's funny. <laughs> uh, Clark Gable gave his Oscar to a young boy who admired it. As Gable thought that it mattered only that he had won, not owned the statue. And after Gable had died, the boy, who at that time was probably a man, gave the Oscar back to the Gable family. So, which is actually pretty impressive because you, <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> Sorry. Both Colbert and uh, Gable thought this was not the best film that they had made up until that point, despite the critical and commercial praise even long after its release. Colbert even apparently said that she had just filmed the worst picture in the world. Wow. Uh, this one was pretty interesting. And I read this one when we were actually rewatching this, but many Looney Tunes characters are based on this film with Gable's character and inspiration for Bugs Bunny. In terms of like, sort of his comic mischievous and how fast he talks and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And he's eating the carrots in that one scene. Right. And the whole, yeah. And I guess um, who did the animation for Looney Tunes, like Chuck Jones mm -hmm. really drew a lot of inspiration from that carrot scene alone and how bugs should eat his carrots. Right. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> when Clark, when Clark Gable removes his shirt and no undershirt is seen, a new trend of not wearing undershirts was now cool. Yeah. And then in 1951, when Marlon Brando in Streetcar in Desire was wearing an undershirt, <laughs> then it was cool again to wear an undershirt. So, Steven Spielberg purchased Clark Gable's Oscar and he donated back to the Academy. And then we got some AF, we got some AFI list here. In terms of their 100 movies, in 1998, it was number 35. And in 2007, it went up to number 46. Their 100 Years of Laughs. It is the number eight best comedy. There are 100 Years of Passions, so romantic movies, that's number 38. And it is the number three top 10 romantic comedies for them. That seems really low for the, the Passions one in particular. I figured this is one that would be a lot higher on the love stories list. Right. A lot closer to number one, I guess I should say. But yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, oh yeah, yeah. say that. It is a romantic comedy, but they they don't kiss. So it feels more like a comedy, I think, than a romance. You know what I mean? Oh my God, I never even considered that. They don't. They don't kiss at all. Interesting. Yeah, especially because like the last scene, we don't see them. So interesting. Good point. But yeah, that is it. Happened well, one night. I guess it also scandalous because she is married. True. That's true. That's a good point. Very scandalous. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, definitely a deserving Best Picture winner, not to spoil our rankings, but, you know, I think we we all kind of agree on that pretty clearly. Um, and just the success of Frank Capra in that decade, when you consider that one of those Oscars wins was not even for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, um, and, and, you know, he didn't win for um, It's a Wonderful Life, you know, there's a guy who could have had five Oscars in some scenario, but really impressive. Any further thoughts on that before we go into ranking these nominees? If anybody has the Criterion channel, I'm pretty sure it's on there to watch. Nice. Yeah, but it is also worth buying the Criterion edition because it looks very nice. Yeah, that it does. Also one of the few Best Picture winners on Criterion. Yeah, there's not many. Not many at all. So, All right. So now let's get into our ranking of these 11 movies that we've covered these past two episodes and see where we land. Toby, would you like to start us off going up from number 11 to number one? Sure. Uh, at number 11, it's The House of Rothschild, of course. 10, One Eye of Love. 9, Flirtation Walk. 8, Here Comes the Navy. 7, Viva Villa. Uh, Six, The Gate of, Gate of Orsi. Five, Cleopatra. Four, The Thin Man. Three, The Barretts. Uh, two, The Imitation of Life. And of course, the best one, it happened one night. All right. Uh, I'll go next. At number 11, I have One Night of Love. Number 10, I have The House of Rothschild. Number nine, I have Flirtation Walk. Number eight, Here Comes the Navy. At seven, I have Viva Via. Six, Cleopatra. Five, The Gay Divorcee. Four, Imitation of Life. Three, The Thin Man. Two, The Barretts of Wimpole Street. And at number one, of course, It Happened One Night. Okay. Um, shout out to the White Parade for not making the list because, of course, oh, it's more. It's, it's can't be seen. It's not lost, but it is unfortunately getting there. Anyway, my number 11 is The House of Rothschild, the, the comedy of the year. <laughs> Number 10 is One Night of Love, because, yeah, I didn't really care for it that much. Number nine is Viva Via. Number eight is Flirtation Walk. And those four I hate the most. Mm -hmm. Hate's a strong word. Eh, I don't care, though. It works. It works. <laughs> Number seven is Here Comes the Navy. Number six, The Gay Divorcee. Number five, Cleopatra. Number four, The Barretts of Wimple Street. Three is Imitation of Life. Two is The Thin Man and... I think we solidified that question of which picture was best. My God, it is had happened one night. Yeah. Like a lot of competition. No. Yeah, no. I think it's it's really interesting. I think even though we we all differed some in our rankings, like we all had a different number two. Um, I think this was the most, like the easiest been to agree on whether a film was good or not from this list. Right. And so 
Yeah. And then read uh, Toby's overall thing. Yes. So as as Toby always does, created a a overall ranking and overall ranking for the three of us. And so at number eleven, we have the House of Rothschild. Number ten, One Night of Love. I think we solidified that those were the two worst. Uh, number nine, Viva Via. Number eight, Flirtation Walk. Number seven, Here Comes the Navy. Number six, The Gay Divorcee. Uh, number five, Cleopatra. Number four, The Thin Man. Number three, Imitation of Life. Number two, The Barretts of Wimpole Street. And of course, number one, It Happened One Night. This is another year where the Academy actually did very much get it right. So. We all pretty much agree. I mean, there's not like none of our rankings are that off of each other's really. Yeah. I honestly think I honestly think that those five there, it happened one night, the Barrett of Wimble Street, Imitation of Light, the Thin Man, and then either switch Cleopatra or the Gay Divorcee as right. the fifth nominee, those would be a perfect five. Right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that if you had just those five, it would be a pretty good year. Yeah. You know? yeah. But there's two nominees are only nominated for Best Picture. That's kind of interesting too. Yeah. Considering how like just not common that is it's really interesting that we had those all those in one year i also think it's interesting the affairs of selene you mentioned it it got nominated for four oscars but it was not nominated for best picture or best director which is like and there's not nominated for picture kind of a weird well heck there's only three directing nominees this year too right yeah you think with 12 noms the one that's getting four when the leader had six (laughs) it would find its way into those 12 nominees, but I guess not. Well, in 1935, they got 12 too. (sighs) One of them is not lost, so. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so we have to watch all those ones. And then 1936, we finally get to a solidified 10 up until we have till 1942, because we've already done 43, and then back to five. Yeah, there we go. And soon they'll be going back to 10. So thank goodness I, forward I, to that. I want a round even number. I know. Right. Okay. Well, this year we did not have many honorable slash dishonorable mentions. Um, we mentioned all of them already. They're all nominated for something. <laughs> True. Honorable mention, but I didn't, I didn't see it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the first one we have here, we've only got what, seven? So the first one is The Black Cat, uh, horror film. with Yes, with uh, both Karloff and Bela Lugosi together again for the first time. It's right. good. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's inspired by an Edgar Allan Poe story. And by that, it's in name only. Huh. Interesting. Uh, the next one is, I think it's pronounced uh, La Talante. Um it's a it's a French poetic realist film. It's considered a classic. I thought it was good. Okay, um, worth checking out though. Next one on the list is Manhattan Melodrama. Um, another Clark Gable and William Powell and Merle Lawyer are actually in it. If I'm not oh mis- yeah, I'm pretty sure it won um, what's equivalent to best original screenplay these days. Okay. And I just want to say something about it. Yes. Okay. So the opening. Okay. So it is this movie. So I've seen it. So the opening of this movie is really, it's good because it opens with a, it's a true story. The opening scene of a ship that had caught fire and it's a very devastating thing, but the scene is like 
drawn out so intensely. Yeah. So watch it for like the first 15 minutes or so. Cause yeah, it's nice. Something. Uh, next we have early Alfred Hitchcock, the man who knew too much, a film he remade later and made better, I think, but I, I actually did enjoy it from this year. It's not one of his best or by any means, but he directs it really well as he always does. It's good. Yeah. Uh, next we have of human bondage for which Betty Davis got a write in nomination. And I think some say she almost won that night is what's generally considered. So all I remember from that is she's super dramatic in that one she scene. She's also got a Cockney accent, which is really right. It, it's, it's eh, to me, but uh, next we have the Scarlet Empress. It's so good. Marlena Dietrich, mm. Joseph von Sternberg. Oh my God, it's beautiful. I saw it earlier this year and then I rewatched it because I made Toby watch it. But yeah, it's it's nice. It is nice. That's good. And last but not least, we have 20th Century. Yeah, uh, John Bar or yeah, John Barrymore is in it, and it is basically another screwball movie, also with Carol Lombard, and it's basically him getting this new girl to be an actress. He hates her, but then he wants her back, and he wants to fall in love with her. So, all right. And there's a musical that was inspired by it, I guess. So. All right. I don't think there's anything else to. I'm actually glad you mentioned Carol Lombard because um, I forgot to mention we were talking about it happened one night. Uh, since we are legally obligated to mention You Must Remember This as well as a shout out to Zay every episode. The episode with about Carol Lombard and um, uh, Clark Gable, one of the best, in my opinion. Very, very emotional. So very good does it, does it detail like how she died and stuff yes and like yeah. karina longworth actually like gets emotional talking about it and so it's it's very very cool so mm. i can't wait till one of the reasons i can't wait till we get to 1942 because she's in one of my favorite films of that year which was not nominated but we probably will be talking about it anyway to be or not to be mm. all right well perfect so now um we can jump into, as always, one of our favorites, our personal nominees and winners for some categories from this year. As always, we're going to start out with Best Original Screenplay. And I don't know about the two of you, but I have one movie here, so it uh, may not be very long. Um, I'll actually start us off this time, so because I already kind of gave that away. My one nominee and winner for Best Original Screenplay is The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is kind of an adaptation but it's an adaptation in name only so i consider it original yes i also have the man who knew too much all right i'm mr completionist so i have five. <laughs> i only watched one i'm pretty sure i only watched one or that i actually enjoyed so all right so my number five because again i'm a completionist and i'm a perfectionist here is here comes the navy <laughs> Because I had to think of one, all right? Sue me. Number four, Manhattan Melodrama. Number three, The Scarlet Empress. Because it was inspired by uh, Catherine the Great's diaries. So I'm like, it's not that much of an adaptation then, whatever. Number two is The Black Cat. Again, a situation where it's an adaptation in name only. And my number one is The Man Who Knew Too Much. All right, pretty straightforward. 
best adapted screenplay. We should have more. Um, I do have a full five here. So my number five is uh, La Talente. Uh, number four is Imitation of Life. Number three is The Thin Man. Number two is The Barretts of Wimpole Street. And number one is It Happened One Night. Mine go, I have four. Mine goes The Thin Man, The Barretts, Imitation of Life, and It Happened One Night. All right. All right. So at number five, I have The Barretts of Wimpole Street, four 20th Century, three Imitation of Life, two The Thin Man, and It Happened One Night is number one. All right, so it happened one night. It won the big five at the Oscars, and it's got the first leg from the three of us so far. Will it continue? Uh, let's move on to Best Supporting Actor. At number five, I have Warren William for Imitation of Life. Number four, I have Walter Connolly for It Happened One Night. Uh, number three, I have Michelle Simone from La Talente. He's really good in that movie. Number two, I have Peter Laurie from The Man Who Knew Too Much. And my number one, and actually not even that close, was Charles Lawton for The Barrels, Barretts of Wimpole Street. I have three. I have Walter Connolly for It Happened One Night, uh, Charles Lawton for The Barretts, and Peter Laurie for um, The Man Who Knew Too Much as number one. All right, Christian, what say you? All right, I have a number five, Sam Jaffe for The Scarlet Empress. He is uh, the emperor in that, and I forgot his name. Uh, number four, I have Edward Everett Horton for The Gay Divorcee. He is the friend of Fred Astaire. Oh, yeah, he was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At number three, I have John Davis Lodge for The Scarlet Empress, who ends up being Marlene Dietrich's, like, lover. At number two, all right, so these two are actually kind of hard because I had to think about this. So number two, I have Peter Lorre for The Man Who Knew Too Much. And my number one winner, I changed it. It is Charles Lawton for The Birth of Wimple Street. Yeah. Up until I saw that, it was always Peter Lorre. Yeah, and I was fully expecting for Peter Lorre to be my number one. And I rewatched it, and he, I just, he wasn't in as much of it as I remembered. But right. um, still a really good performance. So, All right, on to Best Supporting Actress. Not going to lie, I kind of had some fillers here just so I can get up to five. Um, so my number five is Gloria Stewart for Here Comes the Navy. Uh, number four is Minna Gomble for The Thin Man. Uh, she plays uh, the wife of The Thin Man. The divorced wife. Number three is Maureen O'Sullivan for The Barretts of Wimpole Street. This is where it starts getting good. Number two, I have Alice Brady for The Gay Divorcee. And number one, I have Freddie Washington for Imitation of Life. Okay. Am, am I missing something? No. Oh, I, I know where you're going with this. Okay. Yeah, just wait. Okay. <laughs> As Toby is typing here. But yeah, so my, I have three. Um, I just added one because I thought of one. But it, I have Maureen uh, O'Sullivan for The Barretts, um, Freddie Washington for Imitation of Life, and my number one is Louise Beavers for Imitation of Life. All right, Christian, how about you? So my number five is Freddie Washington for Imitation of Life. Number four, Alice Brady for The Gay Divorcee. Number three, Marino Sullivan for The Barretts of Wimple Street. Number two, Louise Dresser oh. for The Scarlet Empress. She plays the mother-in-law and she is great. And my number one, because this is the only chance that I can get her to win this, is Louise Beavers for Imitation of Life. All right. Brett Even though, yes, I will agree she is a co-lead. 
you can, I think you can argue either way. Right. Yeah, I think you could too. And if I, if I didn't like Freddie, Wa- if I didn't have a winner that I felt comfortable with in Freddie Washington, I probably would have done the same. It's actually really tempting to make a change and put Louise Beavers there to give her the win, but I'm going to keep it as is for now. All right, moving on to best leading actor. I had a couple fillers here as well to reach five. Uh, at number five, I have James Cagney for Here Comes the Navy. Number four, I have Jean Dosté for La Talente. Number three, I have Frederick March for The Barracks of Wimpole Street. He's another one you could probably argue he's supporting, but I needed to fill it in. Number two, I have William Powell for The Thin Man. And number one, I have Clark Gable, of course, for It Happened One Night. I have four. We have Frederick March for The uh, Barrett's of Wimpole Street, Fred Astaire for The Gay Divorcee, uh, William Powell for The Thin Man, and number one, Clark Gable for It Happened One Night. Got into it. Perfect. We have less. We watch the same movies. <laughs> wow. Some just aren't deserving. I guess. Right. If I don't think it's deserving, I'm not gonna. Right. Yeah. Well, I again, I'm like a completionist, so I have to fill in all these things. Yeah. Um, so my number five is Frederick March for the Barretts of Wimple Street. Four is Fred Astaire for the Gay Divorcee. Uh, three, John Barrymore for Twentieth Century. Two, William Powell for the Thin Man, and Clark Gable takes the win for it happened one night. All right, it's two for two on the big five. Moving on to best leading actress, and for me, this was by far the most competitive category and the hardest to pin down. There's actually one or two that I hated leaving off. But number five, I have Myrna Loy for The Thin Man. Number four, I have Claudette Colbert for Imitation of Life. Number three, I have Norma Shearer for The Barretts of Wimpole Street. Number two, I have Louise Beavers for Imitation of Life. And my number one is Claudette Colbert for It Happened One Night. She plays that role so well. Okay, so I have five as well. I have uh, Marlena Dietrich for The Scarlet Empress. Norma Shearer for The Barretts of Wimpole Street. I actually have Betty Davis for Of Human Bondage. And number two, uh, Claudette Colbert for Imitation of Life. And winner Claudette for It Happened One Night. Hmm. All right, Christian. Pressure's on. All right, so I have at number five, Claudette Colbert for Cleopatra. (laughs) At number four, I have Norma Shear for The Barretts of Wimple Street. At number three, Myrna Loy for The Thin Man. At number two, Claudette Colbert for Imitation of Life. Ooh. And my number one winner is Claudette Colbert for It Happened One Night. Three for three. All right. Moving on to Best Director at number five. Weird. <laughs> number five, I have Mark Sandrich for The Gay Divorcee. Number four, I have W.S. Van Dyke for The Thin Man. Number three, I have Sydney Franklin for the Barretts of Wimple Street. Number two, I have for Alfred Hitchcock for The Man Who Knew Too Much. And number one, Frank Capra. It happened one night. Okay, I have five. Uh, I have DeMille for Cleopatra, W.S. Van Dyke for The Thin Man, uh, John Enstall for Imitation of Life. Hitchcock for The Man Who Knew Too Much, and my winner, Frank Capra, for It Will Happen One Night. 
All right. All right. So think about this. <laughs> no, I'm good with it. Okay. <laughs> At number five, I have W.S. Van Dyke for The Thin Man. At number four, I have Mark Sandridge for The Gay Divorcee. At number three, I have Cecil B. DeMille for Cleopatra. At number two, I have Joseph von Sternberg for The Scarlet Empress. And my winner is Frank Capra for It Happened One Night. Four for four. One this to go. First, I, was, I was thinking because this is like the first chance I had to put a Hitchcock for a nomination and I Ooh. didn't. Yeah, because yeah. I normally do. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, moving on to our final category, Best Picture, a.k.a. our Best Films of the Year. Um, I normally like to try to fill this as much as possible, but I won't include a film if it doesn't have at least three stars. And so that means I only have seven movies today for my Best Picture category. So number seven, I have The Gay Divorcee. Number six, I have La Talente. Number five, I have Imitation of Life. Number four, I have The Man Who Knew Too Much. Number three, I have The Thin Man. Number two, The Barretts. And number one, It Happened One Night Takes the Cake. Hey, I have nine. Uh, coming first, it's this movie called Sadie McKee. It's a Joan Crawford movie. Oh. Um, and I have Of Human Bondage, Cleopatra, The Man Who Knew Too Much, The Scarlet Empress, the Thin Man, The Barrett's of Wimple Street, Imitation of Life at second, and the winner, of course, It Happened One Night. All right. I like that rule of three or more. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. like that's kind of like the, the barrier for if I really actually like a movie or not, so. And like looking at these, I noticed that, yeah, three is pretty much where number 10 starts, and then it's, it's a mix of like three and a half, four, Right. Four and a half, five. Yeah. Okay. So my number 10 is The Man Who Knew Too Much. My number nine is The Gay Divorcee. My number eight is 20th Century. Seven is Cleopatra. Six is The Black Cat. Five is The Barretts of Wimple Street. Four, Imitation of Life. Three, The Thin Man. Two, The Scarlet Empress. And number one is Flirtation Walk. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's it not even one. working this time. It happened one night. You know what the sad thing is? The long pause there was me thinking about the movie's title. <laughs> I was going to say the Navy movie. <laughs> uh, five for five. We agree. It happened one night. It was the first movie to land all five of the, the big, you know, the big five Oscars. And we all agree that it deserved all of them. Um. I think that's the first time I've done that too. I don't know if I've ever had any film do that. Did we not do it with Silence? Did we not do it with Cuckoo? Okay, Silence, I guess I did. Cuckoo, oh, wait, I get best director to Steven Spielberg for Jaws. I gave, I gave the movie to Jaws. What am I talking about? <laughs> that's right. I guess I did do it with Silence of the Lambs. So twice they've gotten it right. That's that's really good. Did I do it with Silence? Okay, I think I did with Silence. Yeah. Why wouldn't I have done it? Yeah. Yeah. All right. There for that one. <laughs> well, I think our ranking of the best movies of the year also shows. So I think aside from like you having Scarlet Empress number two, I think it shows that if the Academy had gone with like five of the best nominees instead of 12, it would have been a really good year since they had to go with 12. Very much watered down. 
Uh, but still some good movies to check out here. So definitely check out um, some of these if you haven't already. Especially it happened one night. Great uh, piece of classical Hollywood filmmaking. And as always, thanks for listening. This is our season two finale. So we've now covered 20 years of the Academy Awards. Um, yeah, uh, hard to believe. We will have season three starting up very soon. But first, we are going to do our top 10 of 2020 at some point, uh, probably sometime in January. And then probably around February or March, we will come back with season three, where we begin our next crop of best picture years. And so thanks as always for listening. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you follow us. Um, check us out on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, as well as gildedfilms.com. And thanks to Joshua Arnoldi for doing our theme music once again. Thanks for everybody who's tuned in for these, you know, these two seasons so far. This is always a lot of fun. Our and listeners went up, Brett told me. Yeah, yeah. Spotify wrapped. They do it for podcasters too. And we gained in listeners this year. So we really appreciate um, everybody who tunes in. And especially if you've shared it with other people and they've enjoyed it as well. We love doing this. So um, it certainly helps when we know that people appreciate it and enjoy it too. So, and of course, thanks very much once again to Toby for joining us again. Um, you will hear from Toby again in future episodes as well. Toby, any final thoughts from you? Um, not really. It Happened One Night is a great movie. Definitely check it out. Perfect. And Christian, thanks as always. Any final thoughts from you today? None. I'm excited to do the next one. I know it'll be a little bit, but I can always start. Hey, <laughs> yeah, it'll be here before we know it. So do we want to announce what it is? Let's go ahead and announce what it is. So right. we are we are beginning season three with um, the 2010s, and we are going to talk about 2016, where Moonlight. La La Land. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or Lala, I mean, Moonlight won Best Picture, one of the more shocking upsets of Academy history. And so we're really excited to discuss that one. Zay is going to be back with us for that one. And so be on the lookout for that and for our best, our top 10 list of 2020. And later on this year, later than normal, we will do our um, predictions for the Academy Awards once nominees are announced in what, March? <laughs> so. Probably. Uh, when those are eventually announced, we will get to those too. So the overarching theme of season three is Christian pick the winners. <laughs> True. Yeah. Christian decide our whole season, <laughs> which means it's, it's going to be a, a lot of fun. We're going to have some good films to go over. So awesome. We'll be on the lookout for that and we will catch up with you then. See ya. See ya.